0: Are you ready for this? Ready. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salami. Welcome to this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This is a very special episode. Special because it's the first one that we really recorded on the road i was actually on the road i was in las vegas attending medmark's annual broker meeting they invited me and my guest today kwame ulmer of ulmer ventures to share some time on stage to sort of review some of the issues impacting the medtech industry kwame and i focused on things that have come to pass over the past two years and wanted to really understand their longer terms or at least discuss their longer-term impact. So this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast will review parts of my conversation with Kwame. will be from the stage at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Las Vegas, but I also followed up with some folks in the medtech industry who could speak more intelligently than me about the issues that I brought up. So we will open up with uh, with Kwame. We'll find out about his story. We'll talk about his work to improve fairness and equity in the medtech workforce and his work with Medtech Color. And then later on, we'll bring on some additional guests to talk about the state of medtech financing. We'll hear from John Norris of Silicon Valley Bank. We'll learn about the latest of the MSET rule, which, of course, would give Medicare reimbursement for devices that obtain breakthrough designation from the FDA and are approved by the FDA. I'll talk to Mark Leahy about that. He is the CEO of the Metal Device Manufacturers Association. And then finally, we'll explore the rise of teleconnectivity. I'll talk with Jennifer Freed. She is the CEO of Explorer Surgical. She'll walk us through the story of the company just a bit, but more to the point, explain how COVID impacted her company and how Explorer's recent acquisition by DHX puts it into a great position to succeed. But before we begin this conversation, I want to bring in our sponsor, Medmark. Medmark, once again, was kind enough to bring me out to Las Vegas and put me in position to lose some money at the blackjack table. So very grateful for them. And I'm grateful that they're uh, sponsoring this podcast. I'm speaking today with John Agello. John is Vice President of Marketing and Business Development at Medmark. John, tell me a little bit more about Medmark. What do you folks do?
1: Medmark is a specialty insurance carrier focused on medical technology and life sciences companies. Founded over 40 years ago by members of the world's largest medical technology association, Medmark companies offer products liability and completed operations insurance, as well as manufacturers' errors and omissions insurance for the creators and distributors of medical devices, diagnostics, dental products, pharmaceuticals and biotech, personal hygiene products, as well as animal health devices, drugs, vaccines, and nutritional supplements. While Medmark offers insurance policies in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Our insurance coverage is global in nature. We insure MedTech products around the world and defend our insureds in both domestic and foreign courts. That's excellent.
0: We'll hear more from John a little later in the podcast. If you want more information about Medmark, go to medmark.com. That's M E D M A R C.com. All right, let's start this podcast episode. First, I'm going to cut out my little intro from on stage. Uh, frankly, I rambled on a bit and I actually got a little emotional. It was great being in front of people. And it was great seeing Kwame Elmer. I, I felt like I hadn't seen him in a long time. And then I came to realize later that Kwame and I had actually never met. This was one of those connections that you make uh, via Zoom and uh, during the lockdown. So it's great to meet him in person for the first time. And it was great to, uh, to sit in front of a crowd for the first time. It was uh, really quite exceptional. But I started this conversation as I do with every conversation on this podcast. I asked Kwame Elmer how he found his way into the medtech industry. Oh, and one more thing. The uh, microphones at the start of the conversation were lapel mics. They didn't work quite well. We ultimately and very quickly switched over to handheld mics. The sound gets much better. So things sound a little low at the start. Stick with us, please. It's uh, going to sound great. All right. Let's hear from Kwame Elmer of Elmer Ventures.
2: Yeah. So, I guess it starts in graduate school where I was looking for programs that somehow were uh, had a relationship to biomedical engineering. And this was 20 years ago. My graduate advisor says, this material, nitinol, it's going to have a lot of applications in the medical <laughs> device industry. It was kinda like that old movie, uh, yeah. plastics, my friend. Exactly. That's the future. Yeah. Plastics. <laughs> <laughs> I trusted him. Uh it turns out that I got a job at the FDA and my main job was to review devices that had night and all in it. Uh so that was my segue. Ended up loving the breadth and depth of the work at the FDA. So spent twelve years there and then uh transitioned to a role in corporate America at a at a medical device manufacturer. But my start is a little unusual. It was uh, at the FDA.
0: Yeah. How, how did you choose that route? I don't think I've talked to anyone who started at the FDA, but I have to imagine it's been an invaluable perspective to have.
2: It, it is. Uh, you know, my first thought: a lot of people who joined the FDA were think, oh, "I'll go for a couple of years just to get exposed, yeah. and then I'm, I'll I'll leave." Um, but I ended up. Um, falling in love with the city of Washington D.C., mm-hmm. I ended up meeting my wife there, uh, so that's a good reason to want to stay there. Sure. And towards uh, in the middle of my time there, all these amazing reforms started kicking in, um, and we'll talk about it later. But Jeff Shoren started instituting these reforms that made it really an exciting place to be. Mm-hmm. We were doing; we brought in some outside uh, experts to help us rethink. How we regulate in the United States. And these are really people of stature from the startup community. Um, we had a retired general who was in this group. Um, but things like that, um, kept me interested and I was there for 12 years.
0: And it was, uh, uh really for, the, and we will get into it later, but it was a real critical time for the number defense It was not what it is today. We'll just say that. Leave mm-hmm. it there for now. So you, you were deputy director until 2014 and then you moved to, to, her. Yeah. her! Got out to LA. How, how did you, uh, what, what I'm always, I love to explore the points where someone says I can do this or I can do that. What made you des- decide to do that?
2: I, um, I was in business school and this particular business school, University of Virginia, Darden's business school had a real strong emphasis on forward progress in motion. So it was a great environment for me to, and I was encouraged to think about my next step that was meaningful. And quite candidly, I had an interest in investing. Um, and the advice I had gotten, received was to be a good investor, um, you should have some time as an operator working in a medical device company. And the other side of it is I always, by that time, after 11 years at that time, I learned how to evaluate other people's work. I wanted to get exposure and get time actually building products. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an obvious next step for me. Uh, and that's, that's how I decided those that, two factors. That's, those are good
0: reasons. And you went from Janer to, to Wavemaker, which yep. was a venture firm. So you it didn't take you very long to, to go where you wanted to go.
2: Yeah. It was, it's been a journey. Um, it's been a wonderful journey and each step has prepared me for the next. So interestingly enough, uh, for meeting with a dental implant company just last night is a potential investment and, in Spent half years at the FDA evaluating dental implants uh-huh. and then three and a half years at a dental implant company. So, conversation. <laughs> conversation, that's great.
0: So, you, you found your way to, to WaveMakers. Tell us, bring us up to date now. You're, you're at Almer Ventures. Yeah. Tell us about that and uh, let's get a little bit about your work with UCLA.
2: Yeah. So I split my time between serving as a venture partner uh, at Waymaker 360 Health, where I lead the medtech practice. So, um, I'm fortunate enough to work with a team that has over 50 years of med tech experience. Uh, and I, we source traditional medical devices, uh, and diagnostics, diligence them, negotiate terms. Uh, and we've, we're closing in on approximately, um, eight investments uh, total over the life of over the last three years that are traditional medtech or diagnostics that we've been involved in. Um, Ulmer Ventures is a classic regulatory strategy consulting firm. And in there, and we're going to talk about it more. I spend time with a lot of digital health companies um, and helping them navigate the FDA. So my, because of my time at the FDA, I, I serve as a coach when they have their first pre-submission or if they want a quality review of their, um, application. And that's what kind of led to a relationship with Jennifer McCaney, which I know we'll talk about at UCLA and no the research there.
0: I have all these questions that are popping up that I think I should save for our, our bullet point discussion. But uh, uh, I guess one that I have is it's a question I ask physicians who leave, who leave, uh, who stop being a doctor, work as a CMO at an industry. I talked to Ken Stein at Boston Scientific, asked him sort of what was, what, what kind of takeaways he had from that transition he made an interesting point that he wishes that folks in industry understood that most physicians really do, you know, want what's best for the patient. They want the technology that works best. On the flip side, he wished that more physicians understood that folks in industry really do want what's best for the patient. That there was just more trust. Oh, well, that's my word, not his. But that that each understood the other's perspective better. I'm curious, from your perspective at the FDA, yeah, and in industry in industry now, what what do you tell people about Folks at the FDA, and conversely, if you run some old colleagues, what do you tell them about folks who are in industry?
2: Yeah, so if I'm candid, when is it when I when you're at the FDA, the beauty of it is it's mission oriented. Yep. <clears throat> and the people there really are focused on the mission of protecting and promoting public health. There, at times, can be a, a blind spot. Because when I was at the FDA, there was a relatively small number of people who had industry experience and didn't have a deep appreciation for one, the people on the other side want the same thing. Mm -hmm. They want to reach patients in a meaningful way. Um, So there could be a little subtext of uh, self-righteousness at the FDA. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the last line of defense before these products go to patients. And when you go to industry, you realize the inordinate amount of time focused on a high-quality process for development of a product. You know, 21 CFR 820, all that good stuff, quality management. System. Um, so, I think it's healthy if more industry people um, accept things like FDA site visits, which is a common practice of the FDA. I wish there was more funding for that, so FDA folks can actually meet with industry and tour sites to get more exposure to what it's really like there. And I hope that more industry people consider a stint at the FDA um, so that there's more cross fertilization. It's a wonderful place at the FDA, highly educated staff. Um, they ask really cogent pressing questions. And one thing, I, the last thing I'll say is I, I would love it if industry viewed the FDA as an organization that nine times out of 10 are asking questions that will help you make a better product. And it's not a barrier. And we'll talk about what we found a little bit at a high level of the perceptions now that industry has of the FDA.
0: We'll take another quick break from this conversation to bring back John Ajello of MedMark. John, now that our listeners know who MedMark is, What distinguishes Medmark's insurance offerings from other life science carriers? Good question, Tom. At Medmark,
1: you get more than an insurance policy underwritten and customized to your needs. Our insureds benefit from our claims professionals who specialize in products liability for life sciences companies, and we work with a National Panel of Attorneys well-experienced in defending third-party liability suits. And through our insurance broker distribution partners – MedMark's staff attorneys and FDA compliance professionals offer risk management solutions designed to respond to the industry's particular needs, including risk evaluations, employee training, contract reviews, and FDA compliance consulting.
0: Great. Now let's wrap this up. This is your opportunity to tell our listeners why they should choose MedMark as their product's liability carrier.
1: Tom, since our founding, MedMark has insured over a trillion dollars in global sales of medical products. From companies in the early clinical trial stage to multinational manufacturers with over a billion in sales, we exist to protect our insured's reputations, their products, and their balance sheets. We even have insured products that have literally been out of this world, tested and used in space on the International Space Station. Choosing Medmark means that you will benefit from our customized and comprehensive products and services, allowing you to focus on what you do best, create, sell and support world-class medical products. At MedMark, we exist to protect you, the life sciences industry.
0: That's great, John. Thanks again for having me out in Vegas, and thank you for sponsoring this podcast and for making it possible. If you want more information about MedMark, once again, you can go to medmark.com. That's M-E-D-M-A-R-C dot com. All right. This is podcast, Mike Tom. I'm back to tee up this next part of the podcast. We're going to speak to five different areas in medical devices that have been impacted over the past two years, not just by the pandemic, but by world-changing events like the killing of George Floyd. So we'll review these five different areas uh, separately. And in some cases, Kwame will speak to them when he spoke to them on stage. And areas where I sort of took the lead I phoned some friends and I got them to uh to offer their more expert insights. So, but let's start off with, with Kwame Almer. Kwame and I began talking last year to discuss his organization, MedTech Color. In this next segment of the podcast, Kwame will introduce MedTech Color and he'll talk about how things have changed or if things have changed in the medical device industry. Let's listen.
2: Uh, We're an organization, uh, 501c3, MedTech Color, that has a simple mission, and that is to advance the representation of persons of color in the medical device industry. And we drew a lot of inspiration from what I like to call a sibling organization, MedTech Women, that started before us. They have a very similar focus because there's a gap in the leadership ranks, and we'll show some data, um, such that there's value that's uh, being missed when organizations don't have more diverse leaders in their organization and sitting on their boards, et cetera. We want to build community. And the, we've built a community of 1,500 persons via LinkedIn, email, and our in-person events. And these are allies and people uh, who want to have mentors, uh, and people to support them in their journey in MedTech, uh, people from underrepresented ethnic groups. We also want to just dramatically increase the number of people who enter, people of color who enter and stay in the industry, and we have some programs to do that. And I'll talk about that. And then we want to actually facilitate strategic relationships that um, have an impact in the ecosystem. I'll talk about that some in a minute. So here's the data. The blue bar are uh, white employees. And this is taken from Bureau Label Statistics at different levels in the organization. Um, orange and gray are um African Americans and I believe Hispanics. And we see a gap. This is not representative of America. We're a to color is a national um organization focused on the US. And the way we view this is um a missed opportunity to add value to, to your company, the top and bottom line. So, what does that mean specifically? We've had speakers like Omar Ishraq and Kevin Lobo talk about their specific aims to increase the number of women on their board and leadership roles, because they believe the McKinsey data that says when you have these people in these leadership roles, you drive top and bottom line. Uh, So that's why we do this. And driving top and bottom line translates to reaching more patients. So specifically, we have these strategic imperatives. We wanna diversify clinical trials. November 9th, uh, we had our first webinar Uh, In conjunction with the FDA to give companies tools to have more ethnic groups in their clinical trials. We want to create 100 new black and brown CEOs. We had a pitch competition where we invest $100,000 in early stage companies that are managed and controlled by Latinx or African American people. Our goal for 2022 is to increase that from 100K to 250K. And then the last effort is uh, increase uh, the number of people entering to stay in the organization. And we do that through a networking breakfast. We have it every year in conjunction with the MedTech Conference, uh, Avamet And we've had speakers like Omar ishraq come and talk about the importance of managing, this was pre-pandemic, managing a large organization. And Brooke Story, who runs a billion-dollar business for BD, talked about some elements of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but she spent a lot of time talking about the impact of digital health and the pandemic on digital health. So I talked about this before. This is our networking breakfast. Uh, Brooke was kind enough to join us as a keynote speaker. The next one will be in Toronto. You're all invited. It's a mix of uh, folks. Uh, Kevin Lobo comes every year. We're joking that we're going to have a seat with the plaque uh, for him to just, just be there every year. Uh, Mick Farrell from ResMed joined uh, last year. We just uh, love everyone from the ecosystem to come. The collaborative community, I talked about it. It's a wonderful multi-stakeholder organization to add to the FDA. The American Medical Association sits on there. MDMA, Mark Lee is an active participant in collaborative communities, and it's all about getting more and better representation in clinical trials. I talked about our pitch competition. What's exciting is, uh, our corporate sponsors are hand selecting members of our top 10 to enter into their corporate accelerators. Uh, J&J, we're in discussions with J&J and have a potential member uh members of our top 10 be accepted into their J Labs, ResMed selected someone for their corporate accelerator. We've just um solidified a partnership with Harvard's Catalyst program. And our top 10 winner this year was the top winner at MedTech Innovator, which is the world's largest global accelerator. And that was a real proof point for us. Someone, a Latinx leader, uh she's running a stroke detection company. Won the top prize in the largest accelerator in our industry. So we're just over the moon, enthusiastic about the opportunity there.
0: I just interviewed her
2: yesterday. Oh, outstanding. She'll, she'll be on the
0: podcast in a couple of weeks. Yep. Yeah.
2: <laughs> this is our leadership. It's, it's reflective of the industry. I like to joke that our first C check came from Danaher, my old employer. And uh, Ernest Adams is that uh, former Danaher employee. He works for Polo now. We're still trying to get some free shirts out of him, uh, <laughs> uh, but we haven't been able to secure it, uh, but it's just an exciting team and it's growing. So what's next for us? Uh, I mentioned it, but I'll just reinforce it. We're gonna have our pitch competition in 2022. 20, uh, It'll be in March and it's gonna be in lovely LA. And we're gonna invite investors to come have one-on-one sessions with our top 10 winners. Uh, Collaborative Communities is launched. We're going to have three times the programming we had um, in 2021 and 2022. And professional opportunities. There's a gentleman I had a conversation with um, exploring. He's African-American director at a medium-sized company. He's looking for opportunities for a senior director role. So I pointed him to our professional opportunities section of our website uh, so he can get access to potential new role for him in the organization. And these are ways, if you have relationships with companies that want to get involved, um, these are ways that you can connect with us. We're really excited about the future, and we just um, love, love, love to have more partners on board. So that's uh, Metacolor in a nutshell. That's
0: great. So. No, it's it's, it's, a, it's a great organization. As someone from the media who I've, I've always tried to make an effort to bring in different voices and, 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 and people who, who look differently, it's this organizations like this and MedTech Women make it so much easier just to to shine them up because we go through our day, you know, trying to find articles and stories and people to interview for podcasts. And it was great. I interviewed the winner of your pitch contest. Yes, you did. Um, yes. I talked to Sandra yesterday. It's just been really wonderful to have a, an entity like this that just that is just holding these people up high for for the world to see and allowing us to help tell their stories. So I'm I'm grateful that this all came together. How are you feeling about, you mentioned McFarrel, you mentioned Kevin Lobo, how are you feeling about the industry's move during, well, it it coincided with the pandemic, but I think the killing of George Floyd really started things, at least started a deeper conversation that was already ongoing. How has the industry, from your perspective, and if you want the perspective of MedTech
2: Color, uh, how has it moved forward since since then? How how are you feeling? So... Tangibly, we're seeing more heads of diversity, equity, inclusion uh, with my perception, still modest budgets. Mm-hmm. We are seeing some CEOs who are full-throated focused with targets. They're not afraid of having targets. Kevin Lobo is a good example of that. He said, I'm going to have more women leaders in my organization. I'm going to have more diverse board. And I think he has a finance background. He just focused on it like a laser and got it done. Um my honest assessment is the scope and scale of the commitment is uh, modest. Well, uh, and I'll give you an example. We Color, and this is just two benchmarks. MedTech is a sub $1 million nonprofit. By any measure, it's a modestly sized nonprofit. You know what the size of the industry is. That's one benchmark. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a uh nonprofit a trade association in California, CLS, they got their corporate sponsors and it's for the life sciences industry. Some of you may be familiar with California life sciences. They used to be called CLSA. They made a $3 million commitment to this effort. Uh, I think the commitment has to be tangible and then in the multi-millions and it will look different for different organizations. Um, and that's where we need to get as organization. The one last thing I will say is the two main trade associations, national ones in our organization, Mark Leahy has been a strong partner and Avamet has been an incredibly strong partner. They have a framework uh, for how to improve the state of diversity, equity, inclusion in our organization. I think there's an opportunity for more CEOs like Kevin Lobo to really 10x their impact and their focus on it. Interesting. And, and Kevin, yeah,
0: I talked to him. Last June, we talked about specifically about increasing diversity. And he had mentioned that at Stryker, they hadn't had an organization representing Asian employees, even though his family is from Asia. So, they created that. But he also mentioned that prior to that time, diversity certainly included race, but a lot of the attention was on women, which is equally important. And it really sort of broadened the scope uh, as to, you know, what diversity looks like and we had some numbers in terms of women representation we have a uh, metal design and outsourcing is our printed magazine and we have an episode um, we have an issue uh uh, called women in medtech where we highlight women leaders or or leaders who are women in the metal device industry and we also track the top 100 uh companies and, and and monitor their or or aggregate data about their executive boards and their leadership and uh the numbers we had in 2019 was 18% of senior leaders were women that went up to 20% in 2020 and 21% 2021. So, it's a slow move in the right direction. Um, are you getting a sense that there's a slow move in the direction when it comes to representation of people of color?
2: Yeah, and I think the the right word is slow. <laughs> That's the right, uh, what's that adjective? Um, you know, I don't say this often. I view this as a multi-generational effort. This is our contribution to this effort in a $100 billion industry. And given the size of our industry and the makeup of America, there's a unique opportunity to put more focus on this. And it could be incentives in the health economics and reimbursement space that companies say, look, you know, we recognize the browning of America. We recognize that, you know, the emerging markets are not necessarily um, Europe anymore. There are other places in the world and we're going to get ahead of this and we're going to incentivize this. This is not an idea I came up with. I, I was talking to Carl St. Bernard and he talked about a role for health economics groups actually in this effort as well. So, I think there's a lot of work to be done, but this is our this is our contribution. And I think um, we are positioned to help large and small organizations get better.
0: Do, do you think we need a separate, one of the the, the conversations that came up that, as uh, I always thought about this as a workforce issue, but then the, the issue about clinical trials came up. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised, frankly, at the underrepresentation in clinical trials. It's it's certainly part of the, the, the same larger problem, but it's a different part. Is that, do we need an organization... Focus on, on on that aspect, and MedTech Color
2: works on on workforce, or or are you are you taking that all on? We are taking it on, and startups are taking it on. It's yeah. it's, it's, it's it's fascinating. There's a uh, we call it DMV. There's a Maryland-based startup that I met with two days ago. Uh, it's a digital health company. Their entire business model is to enroll more African Americans in clinical trials. That's their business. Wow. And they say 2% of African-Americans enroll in pharma trials, et cetera. They have an interesting way to monetize that. So, everybody makes money in relationships with HBCUs and uh, the Divine Nine, which is Black fraternities and sororities. So, those are two interesting ways that we could get at it. Now, if another nonprofit wanted to rise up that's only focused on diversifying clinical trials, I wouldn't wouldn't be opposed because we're one player in an ecosystem and it's all good work.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. So that was our discussion about equity and fairness in the MedTech workforce. Next, we're going to talk about financing. First, let's hear again from Kwame Elmer. Kwame is investing heavily in in digital health and he'll explain why in this clip. But Kwame, to my point about, or my question about how has investing changed during the pandemic where, you know, I know people are making pitches over Zoom. That's all well and good, but more, more, more than that. How have has the infrastructure of the ecosystem changed considerably over the last two years?
2: Yes. So I would love to just highlight a couple things um, based on our experience in the fund. Our highest valued company in our portfolio there, and I can't share who they are just yet, just yet, because it's it's not public. Is going to have a post-money valuation of seven hundred million dollars. It's a digital health company. at Period. Uh, our first significant exit was a digital health company called Citizen. Uh, we invested when they were valued at approximately $15 million. They uh, exited for roughly $325 million uh, in the order of three years, a digital health company. Uh, one of our portfolio companies, which is digital health is merging with another one. So there's a lot of activity. Brooke Story brought this up. Some McKinsey data shows that from 2017 to 2021, telemedicine companies have increased. No, telemedicine activity has increased by 38 times. VC money from 2017 to 2021 in digital health, 3x increase. And we just see it. The other interesting thing is the companies are raising larger rounds. A seed deal three years ago would be two, three million, well, one to two million. Now we're meeting companies when we first meet them. They say, "Yeah, we're raising $3 million. They say, "Oh no, we found two lead investors. We're going to raise $10 million. I mean, it just there's so much capital in the market. Um, period. Yeah, no, for sure. And and uh, talking with Sandra
0: Sedanya yesterday, uh, who was a finalist in your your pitch contest and, and won the Medtech innovator. They've already raised 2 million dollars through, just through pitch contests and very non-dilutive capital. They're ready to go out for their seed money now. They already have 2 million dollars behind them funding mm-hmm. their efforts. So this is you know the, these little 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 businesses are getting some serious capital behind them and they need them. So it's great. So my other contribution to this conversation was a series of slides that I got from John Norris of Silicon Valley Bank. John, of course, tracks healthcare financing, tracks medtech financing. So uh, slides don't work so well in a podcast. So I thought I'd catch up with John Norris. We spoke about SVB's Q3 numbers. Let's listen. John Norris, welcome back to the podcast.
3: Thanks, Tom. I'm always excited to be here.
0: Thank you again for the slides at the, at the MedMark meeting. They were very helpful. But as I said, I want to go right to the source uh, and just understand some some big takeaways from the first three quarters of 2021. Let's approach it at, at different stages. What, what what sort of surprised you and what the, what's changing in the early stages?
3: On the early stage side, when you look at it over the last three years, you saw progressive actual downward action in terms of dollars invested into Series A companies. Which was a little concerning because you think about, you know, these are the companies that are going to be setting, setting us up for the next round of really big, exciting companies. And if you're not seeing a lot of series A activity, it's really concerning. But I do think in 2021, that changed. First half of the year, we're at uh, a little bit more than 500 million invested in series A, which put us on track to exceed. Um, what we saw in 2018 and and definitely uh, exceed 2019 and 2020. And then Q3 was actually a really big quarter, over 400 million invested into Series A in just that quarter. So we're at around a billion dollars or more, which is really good to see. And I think if I think about Series A, I think about really two sectors that I think are most interesting. One, non-invasive monitoring continues like sort of sensor-based technology, super interesting. Uh, a lot of that is, is focused on cardiovascular, hmm. and then the second one would be sort of on the neurostim side. Uh, but but included in that is some interesting sort. We saw this, you know, Neuralink, which is sort of the Elon Musk company that raised a really huge round. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've seen a couple other Series A companies in the brain-computer interface technology, which I thought super interesting, something to watch.
0: That's amazing. That's that's extraordinary. Yeah. Okay. That we'll definitely watch that. Let's move into uh, to later stages. What are you seeing there?
3: yeah and so later stage with with a a good q3 we're actually at somewhere over seven billion dollars for the year for a device which again is, wow. is a record for a year at q3 um so that's great i think if i if if there's one big takeaway there it's just seeing so much capital that's non-traditional venture and these are sort of the the hedge funds, the private equity players, the late-stage folks, a lot of them had been very successful on the biopharma side and maybe looked to expand into other sectors. But this is your big source of capital for your Series C and your Series D. And you're seeing firms like D1 Capital and RA and Marshall Waste. And mm-hmm. these are the sort of folks that are, that are coming in. And this is actually, I think, one of the reasons why Series A is up is that you have this really extensive pool of late-stage capital. And the late stage capital I think has obviously been driven by the ability for 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 really interesting companies to go public with the IPO market open you know the the, the later stage funds see this as an opportunity to get in early at a valuation that's you know maybe better than what they would get at an IPO but then being in that round allows them to be an existing investor and maybe get more in the IPO so it's interesting to see I think You know, if I think about the biggest deals being done in 2021, I would say, you know, robotic surgery continues to be very, very big. And then, you know, similar to Series A, Neuro, but that's where you're starting to see a lot of these PE hedge funds, folks, and you're seeing these rounds at $40 million
0: plus. Well, that leads us perfectly to our, our final uh final point we want to look at exits uh, M&A IPOs etc so how's that looking
3: yeah i would say maybe starting off with the the other which is the SPAC side i think we're seeing you know interesting activity there overall almost all the SPACs that we're seeing in healthcare have traded down once they de and started trading publicly in the market
0: what is what is the de-SPAC i saw the de-SPAC on the slide
3: oh so so yeah so SPAC is really you, you're announcing you're announcing the intent to merge. And then when you actually consummate, you raise that money and you start getting traded publicly as this new entity, that's the D-SPAC. So when you think about at D-SPAC, you think about the implied value when you announce the SPAC and then you look at, okay, now you're actually trading in the public market. What does that look like? Almost everybody's trading down uh, kind of broadly across healthcare. Although I will say on the device side, you know, in the second half, we've seen two pretty interesting D-SPACs, one vicarious surgical, that was, you know, uh, the announced value a little bit over a billion, and I think it was trading at the end of October at like one point six billion in terms of value. So that's great to see. Yep. And then Humacite was another one, announced value again a little bit over a billion, and it's trading right around a billion. So those are two really interesting ones, and I think, you know, the the, the takeaway there is that at least you're raising a lot of capital. So even if you are trading down, you have time. To sort of you know make back the shareholder value, and you're you're out into the public market. So that's kind of on the de-spac side or the spac side. But I think you know what I look at. One, IPOs continue to be really strong. So as of sort of uh, the end of October, I think we're around 15 IPOs, which is the the biggest number that we've seen since 2015. And the second half IPOs have been pretty strong in terms of the pre-money valuations and the dollars raised. So it looks like the demand is really there. And I think it's a little bit mixed. You have you have, you have three that are down about 20%, and then you have three that are up uh, one significantly in Procept. Um, so good activity there. And I think that that is, obviously, it's good for the industry. And it's also exciting when you sort of take into account the private M&A that goes along with it. Because not only are we seeing really good activity on the IPO side, M&A is up too. And with the 5 M&A we've seen so far in the second half, I think we are at around you know, 19 uh, M&A for the year, wow. which puts us really close to the to 2015's record. And the dollar amount for upfront is up. And that's also exciting. But what's even more exciting, I think in my mind, is that you're seeing all these sort of small and mid-cap public companies that are coming in to acquire venture-backed device technologies. You see companies like Nuvasive and C-Spine, Axonix, Hillrom, et cetera, coming in to acquire medical technologies uh, from the venture side. All very exciting because it's not just your usual suspects. Usual suspects are still acquiring companies, but now you have another group of acquirers as well. And so that, with the IPO market, and a lot of capital that's uh, out there to be invested into medical technologies means that I think device is really in a good place right now.
0: Fantastic. Well, outstanding information as always. John, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You got it. Anytime. Next, we're going to talk about the FDA. So Kwame Elmer teaches at UCLA. He works with Jennifer McCaney, who heads the Biomed program there. Together, they renewed a study that Josh Macauer talked about on this podcast that he did about a decade ago of the FDA, a survey of medical device executives to understand exactly how the agency is treating medical device applications. So it's a considerable undertaking to understand just how things are going at the FDA. You may recall Josh Macauer shared the origins of the survey that he did initially. It was uh, came at the behest of a congresswoman, Anna issue who basically said, look, I want data to support your claims. And uh, and that's what the study provided. And the impact at the FDA has been uh, considerable. This new study that Kwame will talk about will uh, just show us how considerable that impact has been.
2: So, uh, I had been bugging uh, we're, Jennifer McKinney is a leader in the healthcare ecosystem nationally, but really has a big presence in Southern California. She's a um, professor at UCLA. She runs their healthcare entrepreneurship program and the biodesign program, which is analogous to Stanford's biodesign program. So I had been talking to her about the Macauer study and the Macauer study was one where Josh Macauer uh, surveyed uh, med tech companies in 2010 to ask their perceptions about the FDA. And um, we thought collectively, Jennifer McCaney, myself, and Christian Johnson, the investigators for this study, that there was an opportunity a decade later to not only ask about perceptions of the FDA, but ask questions about reimbursement. Um, how do you feel about reimbursement? Uh, look at quantitative data on how long it really takes to get through the FDA to see quite candidly if the reforms from Jeff Shuren had made an impact in in perception and reality. Um, And then ask new questions regarding digital health, uh, the breakthrough designation program, the guarantee four years of reimbursement. So it was an update, an enhanced update and a more quantifiable look at the state of what it takes to get a medical device, digital health, or diagnostic company from concept to commercialization. And we have the initial data set in. We're analyzing it, uh, and there's going to be a report uh, put out in partnership with BCG. uh, And we're going to go on a roadshow, Tom, and hopefully we can be a stop on your roadshow to share the results. But in a nutshell, we can now say with definitiveness how much it costs to take a 510K device from concept to commercialization. We can say with clarity how many months it takes. We can say with clarity, this is the perception of the industry of the role FDA plays. Are they a barrier, a burden in 2021? We can answer those questions now. Uh, we can also talk about perceptions of how difficult it is to get through the EU. And the main point of the reforms was to solidify the US as the first place for innovators, medtech innovators to run clinical trials and uh, apply for um, marketing approval. Uh, So I'm excited to share this um, information. I think there will be some surprises and there'll be some validation of the work and reforms one way or the other, um, that have gone on in the US, and obviously the, all the reforms going on in the EU and how companies perceive it.
0: And then later on, I asked Kwame, who was still at the FDA at the time that Josh Mackauer's first study came out, whether he remembers uh, the impact of that study vividly. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the what was it like seeing the data? Did it did was there? Um...
2: Was it offensive? Was well, it? You know, uh, there it? were two camps. I was so early. In, so the two camps were in the FDA our process is fine. We make sure the products are safe. We don't really have a role in accelerating or helping innovators in any meaningful way. We are regulators, we make sure the products are safe. And the culture at the FDA when I first started was. There's a dual mandate, safety and effectiveness, but we had a bias towards asking all the questions you need to ask, whether there are 10 or 20, to make sure that product was safe. Um, the reforms that were put in place put a more uh, emphasis on effectiveness. There were the, these outside experts that came into the FDA and helped us rethink how we can more efficiently get through a review. And that ultimately, it was called the innovation pathway that ultimately relate resulted in the breakthrough designation program. So there were a series of reforms that um, took place over those years. And now I think we're at a point because of Medufma, we can look at the performance of the FDA, how many pre submissions are uh, going through, how many breakthrough designations are going through. De novo was a very opaque process. Now de novo is a. Standard process to get through the FDA. I would say ten years ago, it was no man's land. You didn't know how long it was going to take. The perception was it was going to take almost as long as a PMA, and people really didn't want to be a de novo product. Now, people want to be a de novo product. <laughs> they they like the money. They they like the clarity of the guidances that have come out. Um, so I know we probably have to hit other things, but um, I'm excited about this research. And when I was at the FDA, it had a it wasn't a it wasn't a category nine earthquake, but it was not a tremor. It was probably like a five inside. It was, we kind of got shook up.
0: I'm from Massachusetts. So those, I know you're from LA. So those actually mean something to you, but I'm guessing five's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 5 sounds big. Okay. Yeah. Don't want to deal with nines. I know nines are bad. Right. Nines are bad. <laughs> <laughs> what is your timeline for results from your uh, data and yes, we've you've, you've got meetings in Boston in May. Yeah. Minnesota we, in June.
2: We we, in actually, Santa Clara in You're we actually October. actually want to wanna, we we actually want to announce this at JP Morgan. Okay. Uh so January second week in January uh we we're working through the report with uh BCG now. Uh they've been a great partner and um um hopefully we will we will uh, we also talk about the mcit program and hopefully we can have a positive impact on the discussion in mm-hmm. the biden administration about what to do about reimbursing for breakthrough designation products. I right.
4: right,
2: Kwame mentioned
0: that the survey will also cover reimbursement and we could also cover that in our talk at bedmark specifically the medicare coverage of innovation technology rule that came and went It allowed for four years of reimbursement from Medicare for devices that secured breakthrough designation from the FDA. It's a huge boost for device investors, as Kwame said in the conversation, that uh, he saw a number of companies moving toward breakthrough designation because that's where the money is. They were able to uh, guarantee investors that if they got regulatory approval, they'd have Medicare reimbursement. And that's a that's a huge deal. Unfortunately, that deal has uh, gone by the wayside. The Biden administration is changing course, and to get an update on where we are with all this, because it seems to be an ever changing story, I talked to Mark Leahy, the CEO of the Medical Design Manufacturers Association (MDMA). A lot of uh, a lot of initials going on, but. Uh, Mark's the best, and he gave us an update on what's going on with MSET. Let's listen. I'm Mark Leahy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. It's great to, uh, great to get an update on, uh, on the Medicare coverage of innovation technology, the MSET rule. It's, it, we've had a lot of back and forth uh, on this. Take us back, if you would, to uh, when it was first introduced. I had that happening in, in 2019, but it, was it not approved until 2021? Can you give us a little history?
4: You know, this is something and actually an issue we've been working on for close to a decade now, uh, trying to, you know, narrow that gap between regulatory and reimbursement for innovative medical technologies. And it's had a, a few iterations. I think PACER was the first uh, acronym. And then the Obama administration had an excite proposal uh that was under review, got cleared by CMS, and then um with the doc fix kind of uh was crowded out of the physician fee rule back I think in two thousand sixteen. Um and then with the Trump administration came in. Uh, there was an effort to revisit, and and ultimately there was a proposal uh, under review at OMB for for um, uh, a little over a year, I think, and then ultimately the the uh, proposed rule was put out in September of 19, and the final rule was issued in January of 2020.
0: Give us just a quick description of of what the rule does. The the first one that came out in in, uh, in September of 2019.
4: So the proposed rule in September of 2019 would have provided. Uh, Automated, automatic coverage for FDA-designated breakthrough devices for a four-year period. The intent there is obviously to provide uh, for these novel medical technologies to address unmet clinical needs, wanted to accelerate Medicare beneficiaries' access to them. So there would be an opportunity for Medicare beneficiaries not to have to wait many years to get access, In the interim companies would uh, collect data over that four-year period to ultimately uh, infor- uh, help inform a permanent uh, coverage determination uh, by CMS.
0: So, so where do we stand currently? I know there was some news that came out in September 21, and then we had some more news that came out this week. There's a lot of, again, a lot of pages being turned. What's the status of, of MSET?
4: Sure. So the new administration came in, obviously paused all regulations and rules that weren't implemented, issued some additional uh, rules seeking uh, feedback. And ultimately, what came out last week was very disappointing, Uh, not necessarily surprising, was that uh, CMS was actually rescinding uh, the previous rule, the MSIT rule, so that the MSIT 1.0 will not be moving forward. That rescission will officially take effect on December 15th. However, CMS has noted in a number of uh, press releases and FR notices their desire uh, to enhance and improve coverage for innovative medical technologies they've indicated that you know there is a need here potential for additional rulemaking and I think what what we remain optimistic about and talking both with the professional staff there but also you know I po- think health policy experts across the political spectrum well-regarded folks like Mark McClellan and and the team at Duke Margolis have come out and expressed support for an sit like approach there's overwhelming bipartisan support you may have seen just this week the cures 2.0 legislation was uh, introduced by congresswoman De Get in Congressman Upton, uh, again, building off the overwhelming bipartisan support they had for the 21st Century Cures legislation in 2016. Uh, and one of the key provisions in Cures 2.0 is an MSIT-like approach. So again, what we remain uh, optimistic uh, about is the, the ongoing understanding that there are critical novel medical technologies out there that can absolutely improve patient care from Medicare beneficiaries, and we should be doing everything possible to narrow that gap between the regulatory and reimbursement landscape to ensure that these Medicare beneficiaries have timely access to these uh, critical medical technologies.
0: The statement by CMS issued in, in September, there was a, it's, it was stated that there was a concern that early adoption of, of breakthrough technologies by physicians could establish those breakthrough technologies to be the standard of care, and it could adversely impact beneficiaries. It, it, it seemed like there's a real hesitancy about giving quick approval or, or assuring reimbursement rather for uh, approved devices. It sounded pretty definite in that, that, that statement. But it sounds to me that from you that there is an understanding that this breakthrough de- some type of breakthrough designation is uh is a positive is that is that the case
4: yeah i, th- I think there's a you know in, in and again i want to speak for c m s but i think you know in various uh As you said, iterations and rules or comments they put out, there are certain things that they highlighted about the initial rule. For example, there is no requirement for data collection in order to qualify for MSIT. I think that's something that is, you know, any of the companies we've talked to uh, about this, uh, we're going to be collecting data. And so if they wanted to have mandatory data collection for the purposes of qualifying for MSIT, I think that's uh, you know a reasonable uh, refinement to make, Mm -hmm. ensuring that that um, that data set inc- includes Medicare beneficiaries. Um, I think that was another an area where folks said, "Well, you know, you could come to the market or, or get through FDA with no data at all on Medicare beneficiaries." And so, how could you make a claim to to have a, a benefit to Medicare beneficiaries? And I think again, that's something that's a, a workable uh, issue to address. Um, you know, the timing in which you inform CMS. I think CMS raised concerns that you know, the previous rule um, uh, allowed basically a company to knock on CMS's door the day of market authorization and have immediate coverage apply. And I think there's a recognition that just like with FDA, there should be an opportunity to to interface, ask questions. So, you know, these are some of the operational issues that um, CMS has raised uh, in various settings. And, you know, based upon the conversations we've had with our members and other stakeholders, I think there are all quite addressable. And, and from our perspective, though, as I said at the outset, you know, this is a concept that's been well-worn um, in different iterations, has bipartisan support, has been supported by Democrat and Republican administrations here. Yeah. And what we don't want to have happen is to kick the can down the road. You know, I did see in the at Federal Register notice, the, the most recent, about two public meetings that CMS hopes, uh, plans to take place in 2022. What we put in our uh, our uh, most recent public comment uh, was that, uh, again, given the uh, well worn um, uh, concept here, bipartisan support, that we uh, uh, urgently request CMS to move forward with an updated uh, proposed rule finalize that rule and implement this MCIT 2.0 or MCIT like approach um, by July 1st of 2022. You know, we we don't want this to continue in perpetuity because, quite frankly, Medicare beneficiaries, um, you know, deserve better. I think innovators, investors, the, the, just the, the the healthcare system as a whole would benefit from these technologies. And again, not saying that the first iteration was perfect. There are refinements, as I just stated, that, that should be made and I think would be uh, embraced by the overwhelming majority of all stakeholders. And we should just be working uh, expeditiously to uh, to address these issues and move forward with uh, an EMSSIT uh, 2.0.
0: And just finally, you mentioned twice the, the bipartisan support. We saw a, a letter from Congress uh from ten senators, basically expressing support for timely creation of a new MSET uh, rule, and it was signed by again ten senators, five Democrats and, and five Republicans. Which in this time of uh, of partisan warfare, it seemed rather extraordinary to have uh, such bi- bipartisan support of a uh, of a program. It, 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 I guess that represents at least those, the position of those ten senators. But is there is there a broader support amongst the two
4: parties for, for some kind of rule going forward? That's a great point, Tom. And, and there absolutely is, you know, you mentioned the uh, the bipartisan Senate letter, as you noted in this environment, when getting folks to agree on much is, is a challenge. But the Senate obviously expressed bipartisan support in that letter. And on the House side, um, there's actually a, a bill introduced by Congresswoman Del Bunny and Congresswoman Walorski called the Ensuring Patient Access to Critical Breakthrough Products Act of 20. 21 and effectively, again, would, would memorialize an Sit like approach. Um, this actually has 14 Democratic uh, uh, sponsors and eight Republican uh, uh, co-sponsors. So, uh, again, I think both on the House and the Senate side, you have multiple members across the aisle here that support moving forward with an sit like approach. Um, and so, again, I think that just demonstrates the, the broad bipartisan support. In one area, you know, we talked about uh, the process here a little bit, not getting caught in the weeds, but there were public comments uh, multiple times uh, that CMS put out the uh, Opportunity for public comment, both in, I believe, in March and then again in, uh, about a couple months ago. And uh, I think overall there were. Uh, maybe call it 350 uh, public comments to the docket, and well over, you know, 260, 70, you know, 90 plus percent of these comments from patient groups, from physicians, from innovators, from investors, all overwhelmingly endorsed uh, CMS moving forward with MSIT. Uh, not surprising, the the private insurance companies were the biggest um, uh, opponents of this. So again, this is something what you look at the diverse set of stakeholders out there. Uh, there's only overwhelming support for this concept. Again, we are encouraging. CMS has publicly expressed interest in finding ways to improve and accelerate coverage for innovative medical technologies for Medicare beneficiaries, and we'll continue to work tirelessly until we have a workable program that stood up to uh, to meet the needs of all stakeholders.
0: That's great. and, and the primary opposition is coming from, uh, from the insurance industry
4: or are there significant right. opposition? Interesting that's right. <laughs> Wasn't aware of that. They're not well. ones. to usually want to embrace uh, new technologies. <laughs> Great, Mark. Well, we'll
0: appreciate the update. We'll, uh, we'll continue to follow the story. Thanks for joining us in the podcast. Great. Thanks so much, Tom. We clearly covered a lot in this discussion. And the final point that we talked about were new tools and technology, how they were affected over the last few years or how they grew over the last few years. We talked a bit about telemedicine, but uh, really focused in on telesurgery. On this podcast, we've uh, interviewed folks from Avail and Proximy and Explorer, and uh, just really wanted to highlight how those companies have grown uh, during the pandemic at a time when sales reps and surgeons couldn't get into hospitals or into ORs. So to illustrate the point of of how telesurgery has been impacted over the last few years, I contacted uh, Jennifer Freed. She is co-founder and CEO of Explorer Surgical. Explorer recently was acquired in quite an interesting deal that really should put it front and center in front of a lot of medical device companies. Let's listen. So Jennifer, tell us about the uh, the origins of Explorer Surgical. What uh, what led you to uh, create the company and, and co-found the company and create the product?
5: Absolutely. Well, Explorer started out of a research lab at the University of Chicago Medical Center. Um, it's founded by Dr. Alex Langerman in 2011. Um, he's a head and neck surgeon and also an academic researcher that was focused on studying operating room workflow and operating room efficiency, or the lack thereof, as we like to joke. Um, And he really founded it based on his own experience, where he saw a lot of variability in what happens in the ORN procedure suites, with a lot of it really being driven by who was showing up to support a particular case and how many different types of procedures and products and, you know, new techniques were being used in that room. And so I met Alex in 2000. 2013, um, when I went back to graduate school, mm-hmm. and I've been working as a healthcare investor in Silicon Valley, investing in early stage med tech and early stage healthcare IT. And I had personally never spent any time in the operating room. And so what Alex started describing some of the operational hiccups to me of, you know, moments where he reached reach out his hand during a case so and they wouldn't have the right instrument or something wasn't ready and He'd literally, you know, be sitting there twiddling his thumbs for a couple minutes with a patient up and on the table. I honestly didn't believe him, (laughs) and so Alex uh, invited me then into the OR. um, You know, very shortly after that, and I started spending time with him and seeing it for myself, and that's where I just became really fascinated with OR workflow and efficiency, and we started. Collaborating on research. And ultimately, you know, a couple of years later, we spun the concepts out of the university, incorporated, um, and started building a product.
0: How did uh 2020, the pandemic, how did that change things for Explorer? You clearly were in a, were in a right place at, at the right time. Did it accelerate a plan that was happening? Did you pivot to take advantage of a previously unforeseen opportunity? What happened then?
5: I mean, I would say it, it really accelerated things for us, and it's it's such a shame that for the reason why. But you know, prior to 2020, you know, I think med tech companies were really excited to work with us, um, but you know, we were still seen we were still seen by a lot of different groups of the med tech as a nice to have versus a must have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thinking about digital technology, thinking about, you know, remote access, um, all of these things made sense well before 2020, right? But until, you know, what I, I say the impractical became impossible. Mm -hmm. That's what really drove change for the industry. And so for us, 2020 was a massive market accelerant. I mean, our business grew, uh, you know, about six times over 2019, overnight, all of a sudden we couldn't keep up with demand and interest. Um, And so, you know, I think it's a silver lining of a really awful situation that you started to see the industry that's often been very slow to adopt new technology, really embrace digital and embrace change, and look for new solutions and new technology.
0: Well, as we emerge from the pandemic, hopefully, uh, it's clear though that that the changes that came last year aren't aren't changing back, at least not uh, uh, not completely. And I think your recent news, your recent acquisition, uh, is an indication of that. Tell us about the deal and uh, what does uh, what does it mean for Explorer going forward.
5: Yeah, we're we're really excited to be a GHX company, and so you know, for us, um, as a result of the acquisition, I mean, nothing's changing day to day for you know our existing customers. Um, we're going to continue working with med tech companies. We're continue working with providers that we work with, and you know, what's what's really exciting about this, and what gives me a lot of confidence that we found the right home for our product and the right home for our team and what we're doing for the industry is really the the history of GHX. You know GHX was founded just over twenty years ago by a set of the largest med tech companies that came together and said we're all facing similar challenges. and we need an industry solution that uses enterprise software to help us solve how we how we work with providers. And you know their initial, uh, goal that they set out to tackle was in the supply chain, um, which is very relevant to what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, although most of you know what they're looking at is outside of the operating room, but it really comes down, you know, to their core mission of connecting providers with med tech companies um, through best in class software solutions, and so they are working with virtually every major med device company and every provider. Um, so they have an existing customer base. That's the exact group that we're working with, but it's really their approach to connecting these different stakeholders with, within healthcare, you know, through software that I'm really, really excited about. And so I think for us, this isn't, this is going to enable us to grow even faster than we were growing as a standalone company, which was quite fast. Um, but also I am excited for our team to be able to learn a lot of their best practices and apply what they've been doing of an enterprise software so well for the past two decades and apply that to our team.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I'm glad the, uh, I'm glad you were there to, to help the middle device companies when they needed it. And uh, I'm glad you're, uh, your future is somewhat more secure with the uh, with the acquisition. Thanks for for joining us on the podcast.
5: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Tom.
0: Well, that is a wrap of this very, very unique episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks again to Medmark for having me out in Vegas for their brokers meeting. Thanks again to uh, my most excellent guest and partner on stage, Kwame Almer of Ulmer Ventures. It was a uh, terrific talk. I'm glad we could share some of it with you here on the podcast very happy that Jennifer and John and Mark made themselves available to sort of help me illustrate the points that I made on stage. So I hope we've provided you uh, with just some some things to think about as we uh, begin, believe it or not, to uh, think about the new year. Once again, thanks again to Medmark for having me out there and for sponsoring this podcast episode. If you'd like to find out more information about Medmark, you can go to medmark.com. That's Medmark with a C. If you want to uh, learn more about MedTech Color and contribute to their very important work, go to medtechcolor.org. And of course, if you want to find me, I am on social media. You can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter at MedTechTom. Once again, that is a wrap. If you'd like to find more episodes of the Device Talks Weekly podcast, you can go to DeviceTalks.com. You can also learn about our events and other podcasts there as well. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and most major podcast applications. That's it. Thank you again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast.